stopping by for another episode of MFA Writers. I'm Jared McCormick, and I'm excited to have you here. I'm also excited to share some kind words we recently received from a listener. Sabyok recently left a review on Apple Podcast, writing, Useful advice and insight. I recently discovered this podcast as I think about whether or not an MFA is the right move for me. I love discovering not only the inside scoop on programs I'm interested in, but also discovering new writers. I look forward to listening to all the episodes. Thank you, Sabiok, for listening and for taking the time to write that review, which will help others find the podcast. I want to also say thank you to Benjamin Blair Chapelo, who recently went to buymeacoffee.com slash MFA writers and donated a coffee to the podcast. Thank you, Benjamin. We really appreciate the fact that listeners like you are willing to pitch in to support this labor of love. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash MFAWriters. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today, I'm with Mary-Kate McGrath. Mary-Kate is a writer, journalist, and disability advocate from Massachusetts. She just finished her final semester at Boston University with an MFA in fiction. Her short fiction has appeared in the Florida Review, Booth, Phoebe Journal, and Tin House. Her short story, Gorgeous Vibrations, was nominated for a Pushcart Prize, and lucky for us, she's brought an excerpt from it to read today. Go ahead, Mary-Kate. I took the job at Surf Hut to work less. Greg Skeed, the manager, liked my vibe. The stand employed a dozen guys like me. Dudes with blonde mullets, sunburns, a puka shell necklace. I was the oldest at 40, but didn't mind being the only golden ager. Surf Hut sold board essentials and commemorative magnets with Pacific seascapes. Greg assured me during the interview that cashiers received a 10% discount. I told him that wouldn't be necessary. Surfing wasn't my journey. Money was just for getting by. The only reason I came to this beach town was to recharge in the sun. Also, I couldn't swim. I was scared of the water. Most weeks, I didn't even shower. I got a nice salty musk going in the mornings out here. Greg was only half listening. The pheromones, he said, nodding, could be good for business. He led me down to the shore for a tour of the place. The stall was tiki style with a palm thatch roof. Employees were required to wear a Hawaiian shirt. He let me start the next day. My first weeks on the job passed no problem. I slept in my VW bus and only bought food when the ice cream truck couldn't spot any leftover fudge pops or snow cones. Surf Hut was never too busy. Occasionally, tourists rented a paddleboard or a local picked up a tin of wax. Surfers were easy customers. 
Nobody ever kicked up a fuss or anything. Most days, I sat on the bamboo stool and watched the tide go out. The ocean at a distance brought back sweet memories from my landlocked childhood. Inspirational posters that hung in my kindergarten classroom. The documentaries about aquatic creatures I used to rent for the public library. The bottom of the sea is darker than outer space, the narrator would say in his British baritone. Many species develop phosphorescent organs to attract a mate. As an adult, I re revisited those flicks on shrooms and become convinced the jellyfish suspended in the ocean's ether were trying to tell me something profound. The best part of the day was sunset, when the horizon erupted in color, like someone had tie-dyed the sky, and the lifeguards hung up the safety buoys, hurting all the families with their rolling coolers towards the exit. Then I'd lock up, which really meant stashing the wares under the counter and hoping for the best. Outside, my guy at the ice cream truck would be shutting down, so I'd collect my frozen nourishments and go kick back in the van. I'd converted the back seat into a mattress and stitched years worth of bandanas into sheets. My work shorts were deposited in a corner pile, growing mold. Some nights I put on a gorgeous vibrations record. I'd fall asleep to the shriek of guitar solos, the psychedelic synthesizers, the distant sound of waves sloshing and churning. Greg's name tag policy ruined it all. On the first day, I went shirtless in protest, but he told me nude chest was against surf has dress code. Uptight, I said. But the next shift, I gave in and pinned on the plastic badge. Hello, my name is Sandy. Major bummer. Huge embarrassment. See, I'd wanted to be anonymous on the beach. For weeks, I'd been greeting my one surfer buddy, Kai, with silent fist bumps and peace signs. Kai was the best surfer on the mainland and seemed grateful to meet someone who didn't want an autograph or a picture. I enjoyed the easy symbiosis of having such a chill regular. Some mornings, I didn't even charge him for the goods. I'd been flubbing all the inventory lists. When I came up to the register to help that day, and Kai got all mind-blown to learn my name, I knew it was the end of an era. He looked at the tag, then squinted at the sand between his bare toes. Whoa, he said, is that a real name? Did your parents, like, plan that? I slid his board wax across the counter. The universe works in mysterious ways, I told him. My words hit him hard. He stepped back and stared, as if the universe had spoken through me, like it was in my mouth. Wild, he said, right on. Soon all the competitive surfers caught wind of my sick energy. Each morning, the boys would jog up to the hut, eager as golden retrievers, telling me to hang Ted Companion and keep it real, offering highs to five. Surf Hut became their main stop for new leashes or sun lotion or earplugs. I wouldn't have minded the company if I didn't have to sell anything. Keep the juice, I'd tell anyone who tried to drop coins in the tip jar. The new customers didn't come unnoticed by management. Greg desperately wanted to promote me. The dude was way corporate. He looked exactly like my old man in his button-downs and slacks, and for that alone I couldn't stand him. But he also tried to confide in me about the business side of things, rattling off sales statistics and talking about franchise potential. You're the face of the thing, he assured me, 100%. I declined all his offers. I reminded him I didn't care about surfing. My only ambition was to live without friction. Let's just stay groovy, I'd say. Greg never took me seriously. Many patrons didn't believe my fear of water either. Older ladies were always trying to coax me out from behind the counter for a surfing lesson. The more flirtatious women told me I looked like Patrick Swayze. I had no clue who that was. I hoped he looked good. Groovy, I'd say. A local tanning salon owner tried to bribe me away, bringing me coupons or something called the bronzer blasting and daiquiris topped with tropical fruit skewers. 
Don't worry, Dolly, she'd tell me with a wink. It's not virgin. Others offered me the cash straight up. Once, a newly divorced lawyer looking for a board tutorial slipped a hundo into the elastic waist of my swim shorts, which were mostly for show. I'm strictly terrestrial, I told her, handing back the bill. Stay groovy, friend. Thank you so much for reading that, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about this piece a little bit, which I mentioned is forthcoming from the Florida Review, who nominated it for a push cart. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Thanks. I'm excited to read the whole thing when it comes out because this excerpt just totally sucked me in. I think it's a real trick to make the reader feel this invested after only a couple of pages. And it's a sign for me of a great piece. And I think what really pulled me in was a combination of the setting and the character, both of which feel really vivid to me. So let's start with the setting. You're from Massachusetts and go to school in Boston, but this piece seems to be set in a surf town somewhere on the Pacific coast. So how did you decide to write a story in this setting? Yeah, um, I really started this story with this voice. And I think I kind of followed the voice to where I thought this character would be. Um, I also think being from New England that, California has like an outsized place in my imagination. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I also just love like niche settings that have kind of their own vernacular and personality to them. I think that's just really rich territory for um, story writing. So you said you followed the voice and that kind of brought you to the setting. So once you get to that point where you've found the voice and you kind of have a general sense of what the setting's going to be, what are the keys for you to like building that setting out and making your reader really feel the place on the page? Yeah, I think that setting becomes vivid when the writing is really embodied. I think um, it sounds basic, but just activating like all five of the senses is a really good way to uh, make the setting more vivid. Mm-hmm. Just making sure that the story isn't just up in someone's head, I think especially writing in the first person, um, just making sure the character has a body and it's interacting with the world around them. Especially with this story, I'm probably going to repeat this several times, but just everything was really coming through the voice. So I feel like even in the voice, I could kind of like feel how this character would move and be. Yeah, I I feel like I'm a similar writer in that I, I don't know if this is like typical for you, like typical with your stories that you start with a voice. But I've found like in stories where I start with a voice or if, if a voice hits me in a certain way, sometimes like everything else just falls in place. It's such a strange thing that like just hear, being able to hear the character's voice clearly in your head, suddenly you can see the place, you can understand what they're thinking, what the, what's going to happen next, uh, what their motivations are going to be. Yeah, I definitely also really feel like voice is one of the most important parts of my writing process. Um, it's kind of the most elusive part about writing. It is very frustrating when you feel like you can't like click into that. Yeah. But then I think sometimes when you do, it's just like everything else kind of falls into place. And I think that's like the best feeling to have when writing. Well, um, the other thing that's really working here in this story for me is the character who is a 40-year-old dude with a blonde mullet sunburn and a puka shell necklace who works in a surf shop but is so afraid of water that he doesn't even shower most weeks. So when you're creating a character, 
What are the things that you think about? Are there certain questions that you try to answer about the person, certain physical and emotional attributes you're trying to figure out, desires, fears, that sort of thing? I mean, for you, what are the keys to building a strong character? With this character, it was interesting to think about what the conflict would be for someone who is so laid back. So I started to kind of think of it as what if this character doesn't want conflict and all these people are trying to get him to work, but what he really wants to do is just like kick back. Um, (laughs) So that kind of became the central conflict in the story. Um, Yeah. So I think just finding a conflict that makes sense for the character. It's hard to kind of like pinpoint where the writing process has happened, but uh, in order to kind of get the story going, it's usually just a matter of introducing characters, other characters, and kind of playing them off the central character. Um, I think when I'm writing stories, I tend to write in a lot of different pieces. So sometimes when my work has been workshop, people will be like, oh, it's a bunch of vignettes, but I don't think that's ever intentional. I think it's more just, um, I kind of tried a bunch of stuff and then kind of wove it all together afterwards. So yeah, usually we'll just introduce new characters and see how that goes and kind of just take it from there. Um, but I'm definitely not like a, a big planner or anything. I think I usually just go into it, see what happens. Yeah. I'm usually the same way, but you know, it, it, sometimes it changes from story to story. Sometimes I'll have a story where like, I need to take a step back and like really sketch out the character before I continue. But often it's like pretty organic where like I start writing the story, things start happening and kind of the, I learn more about the character through the process of writing the story. It sounds like it's pretty similar for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think definitely one of the notes I got a lot in graduate school was that uh, to look for more of a center. And I think I do think that that is, indicative of my process because um i think like when everything's kind of in pieces you have to do a lot of work to kind of reconstruct that into a narrative that makes sense i think a lot of people when they think of the workshop they think like you that people are bringing kind of like finished stories to the workshop but often it's just a draft right so if your process is to like write in pieces then the thing you turn in for workshop might not be a cohesive whole yet and that's okay that's totally fine in a workshop right yeah totally i think i also just i feel like i'm always starting from just like the smallest thing um i feel like i rarely have a big thematic arc in mind too like with this story it was really all about the voice so that was really the only thing I kind of started with so I think it could take a lot of work to kind of get from that like tiny piece of inspiration to a finished story right well another thing that I love about this piece and I know you utilize in a lot of your work is humor so how important would you say that humor is to your writing yeah I think that I, it's interesting because I don't really think about being funny when I'm writing it. Um, I've just been told by other people that that's what's kind of there. It's interesting because I have a a memory in elementary school of like a librarian telling me like, oh, you're such a serious kid, but when you (laughs) write it, it's so funny. But it's never been something I kind of been super aiming to do. I think it just kind of comes out 
in my voice, which is interesting. Um, I think it's cool when writing kind of gives you access to a part of yourself that you don't have otherwise. Like, I think that's what makes writing so cool. Yeah, that's one of the best parts for me, too. Sometimes I go back and I read stories I wrote months ago, and I think, who wrote this? Who is this person? I don't recognize (laughs) the person who wrote this. But, you know, sometimes I like that person. So it's nice to have an outlet to, to bring out those other parts of yourself. Yeah. I think also um, a lot of my stories are kind of about the experience of alienation. And I think that that thematic thread kind of naturally fits humor and absurdity. So I think it just comes out because of the themes as well. You told me before the interview that comedy, you think comedy is most successful when characters are put first. So what do you mean by this? And why do you think that is? Yeah, so I think that sometimes I'm writing something and I realize afterwards that it feels sort of in service of the jokes instead of in service Mm. of the characters in the story. And I think that's when it gets a little tricky. Um, I think that one of the things I learned is that all the humor in the story has to be kind of aesthetically cohesive. It can't just be like, a stand-up comedy routine where it's just like joke, 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 and it doesn't make sense for the piece or the characters. So I think that um, when something's coming out of a really strong character voice or it's a really, like, the aesthetics of the setting are really cohesive, like, I think that that's when humor is most successful. There just has to be some truth to it. Like, it has to feel kind of organic to the story. Making sure the characters feel like real people first and then letting the humor kind of follow after that has uh, helped a lot. I think, I think that's one of the things that works so well in this piece is the character, although, although he's kind of a comical guy feels very real. Like I totally believe that this person is a real person. So um, it's not just a caricature of someone. It's like a real person who's living a very different life than I am. And I'm really curious to see what he's going to do next. And there's just something inherently funny about it, watching this guy move through this world. Yeah, I think it's fun to kind of take the absurdity kind of as far as you can go, like right up to that edge. And then sometimes it's good to pull it back a little bit um, (laughs) in service of the story. And I think like that's what I really learned through Mm. the workshops. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you just finished your final semester at Boston University, which according to their website is one of the oldest programs in the country offering students the opportunity to complete the MFA degree in fiction or poetry in two to three semesters. Most MFA programs are two to three years. So doing doing all of that work in one or one and a half years sounds pretty intense to me. So what do you think have been the pros and cons of this accelerated program? Yeah. So again, before I actually got in, I actually did not realize that the program was just a year, a year and a half. Um, Most students do it in two semesters and then a summer session. And in that time, you do four literature courses, four workshops, and you teach. So it's a lot to fit into a year and a half. Like You definitely really have to set that year and a half of your life uh, aside to do it. And yeah, it's a really intense way to do it. Um, no, I think the pro is that by the end of it, I really felt ready to kind of take what I'd learned and go off on my own and sort of implement 
the feedback that I'd gotten. Um, and I felt ready to do that. So by the end, I was glad that I'd kind of done it in that period. Um, I also think there is definitely a pro to just turning out stories every two weeks. Um, I think realistically, and I think everyone knows this in that amount of time, not everything you write is going to be, you know, a complete piece <laughs> when you turn it in. And I think just going in with an acceptance that you're going to try a bunch of different stuff and some of it will work and some of it won't, I think is a healthy way to approach a program this intense. Yeah. I had a friend in my MFA program who told me this story about this study that was done in a, a pottery class in which the professor of the class split the class into two and told half the students, I'm going to grade you on the quality of one piece of pottery that you make the semester. And the other half, I'm going to grade you on the quantity of pottery that you make this semester. So half the, half the class is just working on one piece the entire semester, trying to make it perfect. And the other half is just making a new piece of pottery, you know, as quickly as possible. And what the, they found was at the end of the semester, the, those that had made many different pieces of pottery were way better potters at the end of the semester than the people who just worked to try to make one perfect. So I think there, there can be a benefit of doing something similar with writing, which is just like writing and finishing stories, writing and finishing stories, trying out different things and just continuing to produce instead of just revising, revising one piece forever. Yeah, I definitely really agree with that approach. And I think that's really worked for me. I think the cons is just that you don't have a lot of time to sit with the work or the feedback. So you don't really get to kind of sit with anything. But I think that's why I'm glad that it was so fast. And now I have that time to kind of go back and revisit things. Yeah, my program was three years and I still dealt with a fair amount of stress and anxiety. And I've heard from people in my program and others who felt a similar pressure. I imagine being in a shortened program there's a risk of that being heightened even more. So how did you deal with the stress of meeting those deadlines and the reality of the thesis looming from day one? I think that with the thesis, it was good to think about, you know, everything I'm working on could go into this. And they actually require that everything in your thesis was workshopped. So there's no kind of pressure to have things going outside of what you're working on for class. I think they know that what goes into it is going to be what they've seen already. And I think just trying to be on top of things to handle the stress. The second I finish one story, I would start the next one, like the next day after turning it in, um, just so I didn't get too overwhelmed when it came down to the wire. Yeah, I'm sure in a, being in a program like this, you really need to be yeah, on top of everything, have the planner all figured out, have your deadlines figured out so nothing ever gets away from you. Yeah. And like I said, also just accepting that you're just trying something and it doesn't have to be your favorite piece you've written sure. at the time you turn it in. It's yeah. good. Another point of stress that I think doesn't get talked about enough is the anxiety that can come from workshopping. A lot of students come into these programs having studied creative writing for much of their adult lives. So it's nothing new to be thrown into a graduate level workshop. But for those of us who came to writing later in life, there can be a fair amount of stress and anxiety about workshopping a piece. It's a vulnerable thing to do. So did you deal with any of that? And if so, do you have any advice for others who are dealing with it too? Yeah, I was really surprised by how anxious I was around the turn-in dates. 
it was always interesting because the actual workshop itself was never that bad. It was always feedback that I felt like I already knew and was expecting. But something about the anticipation of it just made me very, very anxious. And I don't know if it was just coming out of COVID and going back into kind of like a social space, but I had really bad anxiety about the workshops. Um, I would, yeah, just feel really sick. I would have trouble reading. I would have trouble like modulating my breathing in class. And that was always really embarrassing. And I think that also kind of like compounded the stress and the anxiety because I was always anticipating being anxious. Um, Yeah. And I feel like people don't talk about it enough. I feel like that it is a very vulnerable um, experience. And um, yeah, some uh, ways that I kind of mitigated my anxiety going into the workshops. um, I think when you're writing as fast as I had to for my program, it's really easy to lose perspective about what you're looking at. Mm. So having a friend who, if you can, understands writing or even just someone who's kind of a bystander to read it can help you better understand what you're kind of looking at going in. And I think that always really helps. I also would always tell myself that the only way out is through and like, no matter what happens, it's going to be totally okay after and then it's kind of a no-brainer, but also if you're having bad anxiety, you could also talk to your doctor. I think um, taking propanolol really helped, and I wish that I had thought to do that earlier in the program. Um, I think I just sort of took for granted, oh, like, this is what the experience is, and everyone's this anxious. But I think it's good to remember that you can actually explore options, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I have talked to a large number of graduate students um, who have, you know, dealt with anxiety. I dealt with anxiety as well and the stress of the program, all of that. And yeah, having a therapist, having a doctor you can talk to because there are options, right? And I knew a lot of graduate students who took advantage of those options. And, and then the program became a lot easier to handle after that. But it's just one of those things that not a lot of people talk about openly, yeah, yeah, I definitely felt like, at first, I felt like I was the only one this anxious about it. Um, but then I would talk to other people in my cohort, and a few other people were experiencing the same thing. I think, again, just especially coming out of COVID, um, yeah. and going into this very intense, vulnerable social situation. Um, yeah, so it's okay to also share with your cohort too and see what page everyone else is on to. So did you feel like in your program there was a good support system in place? Were there other students you could turn to? Were there faculty members that you could talk to when you needed help with these kinds of things? Yeah, I think the the faculty um, in my program was great. Um, it's interesting. They're all really different writers and teachers with very different approaches. Um, and I think that they were very understanding. Having gone through some of that stress and anxiety, do you have any sense of like, I don't know, like how should programs better support students who are going through this? Yeah, I think that one of the good things about having gone through this experience is I think it definitely made me a more compassionate teacher. Mm. Um, And I was really happy when my students would tell me that they felt like safe sharing in the classroom. And yeah, I think... Just, I think what I did in my classroom was just really emphasize that 
this is really low stakes and you know nothing needs to be perfect and we're just again I feel like I keep repeating this but just here to do experiments and see what happens and um I think that taking the stakes out of it is very helpful I also know that you use a wheelchair, which I imagine could also be a point of stress if literary spaces either on or off campus are not sufficiently accessible. And you told me before the interview that you have some thoughts on this and I want to hear them. It's interesting because uh, Boston University is a very old school and the writing program is at this old historic brownstone. And anytime someone's like, oh, it's a historic building with lots of character, you can pretty much guarantee that it's not going to be accessible at all. Um, and obviously, I, I could access all the buildings, but everything is really old. And um, it was always very tight spaces. It didn't feel totally comfortable. So I think that Sometimes it's okay if we sacrifice some of that historic literary character to make sure that everyone can be included. I think that that is a fair trade-off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, according to the program website, all admitted students for 2022-23 received full tuition coverage, basic health insurance coverage, and a stipend of $16,750. Each student is required to teach one course either at Boston University or at a local public high school during the fall or spring semester. So you mentioned that you have taught while in the program. Had you taught before entering the program? I had never taught anything before entering the program. So there was a very steep learning curve on the teaching. They are trying to they're trying to both make the program longer and also put in a structure to teach people pedagogy before going into the classroom. But for now, every student teaches a section of creative writing and you have a lot of freedom around designing that course. So that was really exciting, even though I had it taught before. I was really excited to do it and found it to be very rewarding. So so what kind of class did you end up teaching? Uh, yeah, so I mostly centered my class around fiction and did a small poetry section. Um, I sort of worked with my students and uh, we worked with what they wanted to do and they were more interested in fiction than poetry, which worked out because I am a fiction person um, more than a poet. So that actually worked out nicely. Uh, And I had them focus mostly on short stories and I, I really liked assigning stories for them to read and just hearing their thoughts, because sometimes it was so different than what I thought, like the reaction would be so different than what I thought it was going to be. And they would have like a totally different way of thinking about a story or looking at it. Um, I just thought that was so interesting, even when it was like a story I really enjoyed and they had a negative reaction to it. Like, I just thought it was very interesting to hear the different ways people read. You mentioned to me earlier that the MFA program at Boston University is a pretty traditional program. And so um, a lot of the workshops that you were in, I think, were kind of traditional writer is silent kind of workshops. What was that experience like for you? And did you decide to do anything different with your own classes when you were teaching them? I think there is definitely value in getting kind of like unfiltered responses on your work. Um, So with my class, I did have the workshops start with Suited sharing their initial feedback without the writer joining in. But then I let the writer come into the conversation. I think 
it's better for two reasons. I think that when writers ask questions, it actually led to a more stimulating conversation, I felt. Um, and also, I feel like the issue with the all-silent workshop is that, to me, it just doesn't really um, imitate any other dynamic you would have. Like, if you're writing career, like, if you're working with an editor, like, that's a back-and-forth conversation. And, yeah, I just think there's value in having the writer able to ask questions and make sure the workshop's working for them, too. Were the students that you were teaching, were these like um, lower level undergraduate uh, creative writing courses? Were were these like the first workshops your students had ever been in? It really varied. Most of my students were juniors and seniors, but a lot of them were from not writing backgrounds. Like some of them were engineering majors and kind of coming from all over, which made the workshops really interesting. Uh, But they definitely were very new to short story writing. And I think I learned a lot about how to sort of introduce people to that form. I think that when you have a class with a varying degree of experience amongst the students, like it's good to be flexible in how you run the workshop, right? For some students um, who are maybe in their first workshop, maybe just listening and hearing the reactions of people is what they need. But maybe people who are more experienced can participate in that conversation more in the workshop? Was that your experience at all? Did you find that having that flexibility helped you manage the different experience levels in the classroom? Yeah, I think so. I was just surprised by how much the writer having questions for their peers really facilitated the conversation, like almost to the point where if I were to teach again, I I think I would almost require that they have those questions. Um, but, But I tried to work with the students, you know, like some people are more interested in talking and some people it seemed really did just want to sit back and listen. So I think just having that flexibility to kind of have it be whatever the writer is most comfortable with. So the BUMFA program also offers its students something called global fellowships, which allow for travel, writing, and study anywhere outside the United States upon completing coursework and submitting the thesis, which sounds like a pretty unique thing. So can you tell us about that program a bit? Before COVID, it was sort of expected that as you finish the program, you would sort of leave right away to go on the Global Fellowship, which is, I believe, a $4,500 grant. But with COVID, they've become more flexible. Now they're kind of more open to everyone kind of doing that trip when they feel comfortable. Um, Everyone has to apply, but it's a very easy application process. And everyone who wants to go on the fellowship is usually granted it, so... And so when you get that grant, you have the money to essentially travel anywhere you want and write. I mean, do you have to attend like a workshop or a conference or is this just go somewhere and write for a period of time? I think the expectation is just that you go somewhere and write for a period of time. They want students to blog while they're there, but that is the only requirement while you're on the trip. And you do have to write a proposal for where you're going. Um, So you do have to do some thought about where you might go beforehand. But besides that, it's it's a very loose opportunity that you can kind of suit to fit your needs. Is it something that you plan to take advantage of? Yeah, eventually. Um, to be honest, I, I don't quite know what I'm going to go on mine. Um, so, so you don't have to use it right away. It's something you can wait and use it later. Yeah, before they really wanted students to leave, like right as they're graduating. But now with COVID, it's 
much more open to whenever you want to do it. Even the administrator for the program was a former student and she hasn't gone on hers yet. So the expectation is just that you'll take it eventually. So where are some of the places uh, or experiences that you've heard other students having through this program? Yeah, so a couple people went to Sicily. Some people went to Macedonia. Um, I know someone who's going to the North Pole. Um, (laughs) Some people take it to an extreme. We'll just like really go out to the middle of nowhere and like become hermits and write. So um, and then some people want to be more in the city. I think someone in my cohort went to Greece. People go all over with it. Well, at the very least, I think you could... uh take it to a nice surf town on the Pacific coast, just <laughs> <laughs> take a mini vacation after finishing this year and a half MFA program. The funny thing is I actually am moving to California. Oh. <laughs> Where are you going? In January. Uh, I'm moving to LA. My friends all live there. So oh, that's great. Yeah. So I sort of, I sort of am doing that, but <laughs> well, that sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> well, before we go, I want to give you the last word, which I, I ask my guests, what is one way in which the MFA experience has been different for better or for worse from your expectations when applying? Yeah, I think that I know this isn't necessarily a unique experience, but I definitely think I went in thinking of it as like sort of an end point of your career as a writer. And I think once you get there, you realize that being a writer is a lifelong thing. And I feel more excited to write coming out of it than about things I was even writing in the program. Um, So I think just seeing it as just like one stop on like a lifelong vocation is helpful. Well, thank you again for stopping by and chatting with me. It's been really nice getting to know you and getting to know about this program at BU. I'm sure people who are considering applying to BU are going to be really excited to get a little more information about this accelerated program. Sounds like an interesting one, but an intense one. So congratulations again for finishing and thanks for stopping by. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks.